You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. It comes from Exodus 21 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the Lord of your God, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word to us, and now we pray for grace that we might trust you more, that you are for our good, and that your glory made known on this earth is actually for our good and for your great glory. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and we have almost done it. We are now in the Tenth Commandment. Oh yeah, this is a torch week. Patrick and Gail are leading out our fourth through sixth graders into the promised land and out of slavery. (laughs) Uh, If you're a fourth through sixth grader and want to talk about the Tenth Commandment, you can do that with these guys. Uh, Just to give you a bit of a heads up where we're headed in the next couple of months, next week we'll take a big chunk of the law. We're going to get all the way through chapter 24 together. Perhaps you were a bit nervous. We're going to do like one individual commandment of the law 
a week and we were going to be in Exodus for the next 10 years or something like that. That's not true. Uh, we'll get through chapter 24 next week, but if you want to go ahead and this week begin to read through those chapters to prepare for next week, that'd be great. Two weeks from now will be our third anniversary party. So we're going to have uh, some food and coffee trucks outside in the parking lot and going to have a, a good time. Hopefully we'll have a lot of friends and visitors joining us that day. Uh, and even though all of God's word is powerful and needed for every human on earth, I've decided that we won't get into like the tabernacle and Ark of the Covenant and golden lamp stands and all that stuff that day when hopefully a lot of visitors are with us. Uh, we'll have something special and one-off for that day. But then the week after, we'll then get into all the golden lampstands and Tabernacle and Ark of the Covenant, which is really, really good stuff. I'm really excited about it. Uh, and then uh, we'll take, after a few more weeks, then we'll get to a four-week break of Advent. I can't believe we're already talking about Advent, but here we are. But we still have a lot to do between now and then, so let's just hit it. Fellow human being, you and I are people of desire. This is, we, this is who we are. It is innately part of us that we desire and want things. Uh, a favorite philosopher of mine says that we are like existential sharks. We are always moving forward, trying to find the thing that will give us meaning and fulfillment. And just like sharks cannot swim backwards, certainly they cannot stop swimming or they will sink. Uh, we are always moving forward, trying to find the next thing moving from this thing to that, hoping that this thing will be the thing that finally makes us happy. We'll certainly get into why this is and then what the solution is, but for now, and in his kindness, God confronts his people here with one final commandment to round out the 10 words, the 10 commandment, you shall not covet. So let's just jump right into the deep end, into the ocean, get our tail fins moving a bit. And then in two parts tonight, We'll try to think through this 10th commandment in understanding the law and living the law. So understanding the law. The, first of all, the, the word covet is about as Bible word as you could possibly stumble upon. Like we do not use this word outside of a church or religious setting. The word simply means to want or to crave or to yearn after something that belongs to someone else. One scholar says that coveting is a consuming desire to possess in a wrong way something belonging to another. But why is it that covet, this word, is such a church word? There are certainly words that we use in a religious context that don't make it or translate into a wider uh, secular society, but I think partly it's because of the society in which we live. Our culture, that of materialism and consumption, the culture of the American dream does not think of coveting as necessarily a vice, but it is a virtue. It is an American virtue. As long as my coveting of something that belongs to someone else doesn't cause me to steal from someone, doesn't cause me to harm another, just looking at something that belongs to someone, wanting that thing that that person has, uh, and then perhaps letting it consume me, that desire consume me so that it translates into hard work and saving and investment or whatever it is so that I can actually get that thing for myself, well, then that's celebrated. And surely, as Americans, we recognize uh, like the futility of like keeping up with the Joneses. We realize that that's a, uh, it won't ever make us happy, but we also recognize that that's just kind of the way it is. 
like as Americans, we just, it's just kind of a natural thing of life that we just kind of have to keep up with the Joneses. We don't really like it, but we're going to have to. It may be silly, but we don't necessarily think of that as a moral evil. Well, this ancient Hebrew culture did not live in the world of capitalism and the middle class and disposable incomes. The 10th commandment, though, then and now still incisively cuts to the heart. With the exception of possibly the the first commandment, the 10th commandment is the only commandment which is internal. We have seen that every single one of the 10 commandments is meant to percolate, is meant to seep down and get into the crevices of our hearts and our desires. But the 10th commandment is only internal. Meaning I could be a chronic, all day, all month, all year long, 10th commandment breaker, and you all might never know it. There is perhaps no observable sin in my life, which is why we need this commandment, and which is why we need it to come last. I read one author this week joke that the Ten Commandments kind of end with a whimper. They started off so high and majestic, like you shall have no other gods before me. And then it just kind of ends with, oh yeah, and don't look at your neighbor's donkey. That's kind of, it kind of ends weird. But two observations about why this one, this Tenth Commandment, comes where it does and why it is so important that it does. Like we said two weeks ago about Stealing being like the mountain spring from which all other sin, all of the other Ten Commandments flow from. Like we steal God's glory in the first and second commandments. We steal honor from our parents. We steal lives. We steal sex. All of these are further downstream from the eighth commandment of you shall not steal. But the tenth commandment, you shall not covet, is the actual fountainhead. You do not steal something that you first do not covet something that belongs to another that you have a consuming desire to possess in a wrong way. So this commandment, the 10th commandment, comes as like a a capstone. It's like the ribbon that ties up and holds together the rest of the 10. Like we said a couple of weeks ago, it is very, very difficult to break just one commandment. And like most sin, coveting is not something that we have to be taught. For those of you with kids, perhaps you've spent time with young kids and Christchurch kids or you little siblings or cousins, perhaps you were once a small child yourself. Uh, you know this to be true. This is not something that we have to be taught. Just the other night, uh, we gave our kids ice cream. One of them was completely content with a wonderful bowl of ice cream until he saw his brother's bowl of ice cream, which to his estimation had more ice cream than his. And then He was no longer happy with his ice cream. Then the rest of the eating of the ice cream was now a miserable experience because he thought it was not fair. You can observe this in infants and toddlers. They can be entirely happy and content to have a toy uh, sit untouched and unplayed with in the corner until some other toddler or infant comes up and starts having fun with that toy. And then, now this first toddler or infant is furiously angry that they want the toy. Again, you don't have to sit down and explain in an eye-to-eye conversation this concept of fairness with a small child. That there is a thing called fairness and that all humans should long for that. No, this is something that we intuitively want. If if, uh, someone has something else that I want, then I should have it. 
or if someone else is enjoying something, it is only fair that I also have it. We're a bit more subtle, but not much different or better than toddlers. Coveting, discontentment, is the fountainhead of sin. But a second reason this commandment comes where it does in importance This commandment comes to us who may have been all through the previous nine just been high-fiving ourselves that we have been keeping the commandments. We've hopefully seen certainly with what Jesus does with the Ten Commandments and intensifying and getting to the heart behind the commandment. But perhaps we can, on an initial surface-level reading of the Ten Commandments think, yeah, I can, I can honor my parents. I can honor and keep the Sabbath. I can make it through my entire life without murdering. It might be a little bit more difficult, but I can never sleep with someone who's not my spouse, or I can never steal. I can try to do that, but I can even keep myself from perjury, falsely accusing someone in the court of law. Check, 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 done and done. But then the Tenth Commandment comes as like a laser-guided tactical missile to the heart, aimed with precision. Why though? Why does God think we need this one? Well, because this one makes explicit what the other commands imply, that God does not require or desire mere outward obedience, mere moral behavior modification. God requires and desires the heart behind obedience, an internal and external alignment of desire and action. The law of God is not physical and that of mere societal norms and expectations. The law of God is spiritual and an internal law of love. Without the 10th commandment, we might be content to live moral lives, to promote and even enforce a culture of family values or something without ever considering why. Even worse, without considering how miserable we are all internally failing at the external norms that we hope to promote. And this is exactly what Paul is getting at in Romans 7. He might have agreed with God. He might have agreed along with every other culture before him. That murder and stealing and perjury, these were all bad things. It's not too difficult to see that actions which cause harm to others and to society should be discouraged and restricted. But then Paul comes in in Romans 7 and he says, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. The 10th commandment comes here as a stand-in for any other internal or unobservable sin. It raises not just the mirror. The law doesn't act just as a mirror for Paul to see his external actions. But now this 10th commandment comes as an x-ray machine. It is like an MRI for him to peer, not just into the external observable symptoms, but now he can see the brokenness. He can see the disease, the darkness, even the rot, which lies underneath and is even causing the external observable symptoms. And of course, the rot is even worse than we thought. What does Paul go on to say about the law? What does he say about the 10th commandment in Romans 7? He, he goes on to say, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life pr- proved to be death to me. 
And here's where uh, the, the illustration that we used many weeks ago about the law coming as like a five-gallon tank of gasoline. Uh, this might be helpful. There is nothing inherently bad about a five-gallon tank of gasoline. Uh, it's actually a very useful gift that God gives to us in the law. But it is our very nature to receive this gift and then immediately not use it for the purpose which it was created. But then we take this five-gallon tank of gas and pour it all over our neighbor's house and throw in the match. Or perhaps even worse, pour it all over our own houses or even drench our bodies in this gasoline and throw a match on. This is what our inherent human nature, the flesh that Paul is talking about, wants to do with the law. So it is not that Paul never coveted before he heard the 10th commandment or that it wasn't a bad thing before he knew the 10th commandment. He wasn't not dead in his sin before he heard the 10th commandment, but it's almost like he heard the command when, when the 10th commandment came to him. It's almost like he heard the command as Adam and Eve heard the command in the garden to not eat the fruit then Paul weighed whether or not trusting God's word, taking his command by faith is worthwhile, worth listening to, and then decided, not only am I going to keep coveting, but I'm going to almost enjoy it as I covet, 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 all the while basically raising two middle fingers to the heavens. In hearing the commandment and then acting in rebellion that way, he has raised the stakes of his sin. He has raised the stakes of his rebellion. Not that he was not culpable before. So there is no high-fiving ourselves with mere external religion and external rule-keeping with the 10th commandment. We see ourselves. The MRI report is lifted to our eyes, left to ourselves and in the desires of the flesh, the default mode of human existence. We see ourselves to be as we are, without hope. But at the end of this thought experiment of Romans 7, Paul throws up his hands in in hopeless exasperation. He has seen the, the images of the MRI. And he asks, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Left to himself, he is dead. The rot is too much. The disease, the cancer has overcome him and it is terminal. To which then the gospel or the the, the book of Romans turns and he answers his question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So like we have just been hammering and hammering and hammering over the past couple of weeks, the law cannot do anything on its own. A tank of gasoline has no inherent uh, life in it. There's potential there but something has to act upon it. It cannot bring life. The law cannot bring life. It cannot transform our very nature so that now for the first time we actually desire to obey, but then are actually able to, in increasing ways, be able to obey. The work of Christ to hear and obey and delight in the wisdom and law of God on our behalf 
And then the death of Christ as our substituting, um, absorbing uh, sacrifice on our behalf for our lives of double middle fingers to the heavens. Now the work of Christ comes as like a brand new engine in this dead old clunker. Are left to ourselves and in our flesh, our cars are unable to do anything. Our lives are like a, 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 a car with no engine that you have found at the landfill. But then Jesus comes and he inserts himself as a new engine. Then the law of the gasoline gets poured in and then the work of the Spirit comes in as like the key of the ignition and ignites the thing into life. The spiritual life. So if this, is a hel- if this is helpful for understanding the law, let's think through how the 10th commandment comes to interrupt our hearts, comes to come in as uh, a preparatory means for the engine and the ignition of the work of the Son and the Spirit. Living the law. Let me just read to you how Kevin DeYoung encourages us, even the words of the 10th commandment might be familiar. He encourages us to slow down, to read and think more deeply through one at a time the way that uh, the law is given to us in verse 17. The law comes and says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Kevin Young, thinking through some potential thought experiments, says uh, they sure do have a lot of nice stuff, don't they? I'm so tired of living in this neighborhood. We live in a dump. It, might, it must be nice to live somewhere so fancy and so well-decorated. Why can't we have the HGTV house? It goes on, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Wow, she sure is beautiful. Why couldn't my wife age like that? I wish I had married someone like her. I'd be so much happier with her than my wife. Look at her husband. He's always so friendly. He's so good with the kids. He helps around the house. He fixes things and doesn't just break them. Why am I stuck with my husband when there are better men out there? Why can't I be married at all? Like him or like her. Or you shall not covet his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey. Man, my car is a piece of junk. It's not fair. All of our friends get to take great vacations. They go to the Grand Canyon of Disney World. Some of them even go to Hawaii or Europe. We're lucky if we even get to go to Grandma's house. Why am I stuck in this loser job? I wish our kids were more like their kids. Why do I have such lame parents? Or you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. I wish I could be smart like him. My life would be so much better if I looked like her. Why couldn't I get a normal family? Why can't I run or jump or throw or be as strong as my friend? Why is everything in my life hard when everything for everyone else is so easy? Of course, the dark secret of the human heart is that everyone thinks that everyone else's life is so much easier than ours. It's certainly not in the Bible, but there is great spiritual insight. And the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Of course, I think we've all, if we would reflect, if we've all gotten to the other side of the fence, then we begin looking for other fences and for other yards. 
When we went through the book of Ecclesiastes together last year, I shared with you this reflection from Jim Carrey, where he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it is not the answer. He had made it to the pinnacle of the American dream of wealth and fame and notoriety, and he was unhappy. We always think the next job, the next job promotion, the next house or the next car will be the thing that makes me happy. The next stage of life will be the time when I'm satisfied. The next date or the wedding, finally I'll arrive. And then we arrive and we're content for about five minutes. This is the situation that Adam and Eve first found themselves in the garden. They had been given everything. The first command in the entire Bible is an affirmative command in Genesis 2, where God tells them, I have given you everything you need for flourishing joy. Go eat of every tree in the garden, Adam and Eve. You have everything you need for contentment and joy. Just trust me enough, though, to not eat of just the one. In faith, walk past this tree of desire, and then go ahead and take from every other tree, the tree of life even, the tree of contentment and joy and satisfaction, so that you might satisfy your greatest desire. But then they decided, no, what we have, what God has given us, is actually not enough. So I'll short-circuit the greater desire of eternal contentment, of happiness and satisfaction with God and with one another, and I'll short-circuit that with fulfilling a lower desire of what is immediately in front of me in the here and the now, thus making us existential sharks for the rest of human existence, always moving from one tree to a next, hoping that since we have given up and shortchanged our, our full and eternal desire with that, that which God has created us for, to find some lesser means of contentment. But here's the thing. Unlike a Buddhist worldview that also recognizes this uh, human flaw of perpetual discontentment, but then prescribes, then what, what a human should do then is try to more and more, more turn off desire. That we can never be happy, so we just need to stop trying to be happy, to find happiness. True happiness is to not have any desires, that, never, that need to be satisfied, as then we like meld our consciousness into more and more of the nothing, into nirvana. Unlike that bleak and hopeless worldview, the biblical understanding and worldview understands and teaches that desire is not bad. In fact, it is good. We just keep shortchanging ourselves. We often settle for mud pies instead of holidays at the beach which is exactly what Augustine is reflecting on in the 300s when he said, our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. We will always be swimming forward from this thing into the next until we find rest in the one who has created us and has promised rest. Until our hearts find home, until our hearts find the thing which they were created for. Jesus asked the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, he asked, why do you keep looking for water that does not satisfy? This woman had had husbands, and the man that she is currently living with is not her husband. He's saying, why do you keep seeking satisfaction, contentment, in whatever it is, in sexual fulfillment, in an idea or uh, experience 
of belonging and of security? Why do you keep looking for all of the things that you were created for in a short-changed, short-circuited, lower version? But in offering himself in his coming life and death and resurrection, Jesus says this. He tells her, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so the antidote that Jesus offers, that he wishes to inject into our veins, our veins that have been uh, snake-bitten with covetous poison, the antidote that Jesus offers is thankfulness, is that of trusting what God has given and has provided in thankfulness. In fact, a better picture is not an antidote that's like a slow drip in an IV bag, uh, but a better, perhaps an entire blood transfusion, a, a new and different blood, the blood of Christ now given to make his people into a new creation, a, a people of thankfulness, of trusting in what God has done and what he has provided of Jesus' life and death and resurrection now injected into us, of Jesus living in thankful contentment with his life circumstances because he's so trusted in the will of the Father, of Jesus, of his joy throughout loss and through very bad circumstances in his life, but then trusting in the work of the Spirit. And then as adopted sons and daughters, we are then his people, his children, now invited into the very life of the triune God, the joy and the communion of the triune God, to grow in loving and living and delighting in contented joy of satisfaction, of contentment. But it's hard, isn't it? It is hard to grow in this, to actually trust the words of Jesus in John 4, that the water that he offers that if we would take from it, we would never be thirsty again. But this is what Paul is getting after then in Philippians 4. Can we actually turn there? I want to see, I want you to see in your own Bibles. Um, the book of Philippians, it's what the, the ninth or tenth book in the New Testament there. Many of you are wise students of the Bible and know exactly where I'm going with this, but the wider evangelical culture is certainly aware of Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And where do we see this verse hanging or often quoted before a a big game or before a big exam or presentation or something? But let's read the verses prior to verse 13. Paul is writing from prison. This whole letter, this whole letter has been just the, the slow drip of joy has been throughout the entire book of Philippians. And beginning in verse 10, Paul then writes this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here's the secret. You want to know the secret to abundance and need? plenty and lack. Here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 is not about achievement in all things. Whatever you decide to put your mind to, Jesus is going to just come in and like supercharge your efforts. He's going to like 
Captain America inject you with like the ability to go do whatever you want to. Philippians 4.13 is about contentment in all things. No matter what happens, Paul can still have joy, trusting joy in the Lord. So sure, like feel free to quote Philippians 4.13 to yourself before the big game, before the big exam, but more so that if you succeed in that thing, you will still find contentment, not in your success, but in Christ who strengthens you. Or more realistically, if and when you fail, that you will still have contentment and joy through Christ who strengthens you. When you feel that twinge of discontentment or covetousness, and I wish I had a husband like she has. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me though. I'm tempted to not be happy with my job or my paycheck or my house, but I can be content in all things. How? Through Christ who strengthens me, through the blood transfusion and the gasoline and the ignition of the work of the triune God in my life. I know that no job, no paycheck, no house will ever make me happy for you, O triune God, have given me all that I need. Even though I may be really struggling through hardship, really struggling through poor health, even through loneliness, you have given me yourself. And by faith, I will choose to measure your love for me, not by the circumstances that I can see around, but by a bloody cross and by a gloriously empty tomb. This is how, by faith, I will choose to measure your love for me. Though my flesh and my heart may fail, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But again, growing in this kind of contentment is not easy. It is not easy for any of us. The grass is always greeny, greener for all of us. The 10th commandment, though, is actually for our joy. Not just to rub it in our faces when we're realizing all the things that we don't have or don't want. No, yeah, I must choose not to covet after those things. But in growing in the positive side of the 10th commandment, growing in thankful contentment. And all of this is a community project. We're about to go from the mountain where Israel is going to keep receiving, but then they're going to work out this life, work out this will we obey, will we obey or will we not together as a people. So don't be afraid to confess with each other this week the real and the felt ways that you feel discontent that you feel tempted to believe that God is somehow withholding from you or is even against your joy. He's somehow trying to squelch any joy in your life. Let's talk about these things in truthfulness with one another. We sometimes need to say these things out loud. It's one reason why we confess our sin each week to, for us to hear those things coming out of our mouth for us to hear those things and then be confronted with, like, how would I counsel myself right now if I was counseling someone else who was saying or thinking what I just said? What are the words of encouragement that I actually believe to be true for them that I need to be believing for my own heart? But also so that we can just keep encouraging each other and reminding ourselves what is true when we don't seem to see it or believe it. 
So if you want to think and reflect more deeply on contentment, I just want to recommend a couple of resources for you this week. This is really, really hard. This, may, this 10th commandment might be the most difficult to actually then begin to live into in full trust. So last summer, we spent eight weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes thinking through many of these same things. So you can find those sermons on the, the, on the website or the podcast. Second, in 2014, uh, the Claris Conference at Desert Springs, the entire conference over the, the whole weekend was called Wrestling with Contentment. There was eight sermons de- dedicated just to this topic. Uh, our brother Thabiti Anyabwile, his exposition from Revelation 21 and 22, I am pretty sure is the best sermon I've ever heard in my entire life. Uh, it will fix your hope in Christ. The title is A Consummated Contentment. Uh, we'll probably link those sermons in the weekly email this week. Third, uh, the book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's a book by a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs. Uh, it itself, this book, is a rare jewel. Uh, he recognizes how hard, how rare, deep contentment in Christ is. And yet he speaks today, 400 years ago, he speaks today to us with such clear and penetrating encouragement. I thought that we had this book on the bookshelf, but we don't. Uh, So we'll make sure that it's there next week, next Sunday, and uh, link that in the weekly email also. Until then, uh, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you uh, to wait, to wait for a great book and a great resource to encourage you. Uh, Listen, you probably perked up when Angela kept reading past the Ten Commandments. For the last nine weeks, you've heard just verses 1 through 17. Then, hello, uh, there's something new. Uh, The narrative ends right there at the, in verses 18 through 21. The narrative ends there with a bookend surrounding the Ten Commandments. In chapter 19, there was lightning, there was smoke, there was fear and trembling. And then here it is again, lightning and smoke and fear and trembling of Moses interceding on behalf of the people. And then here in Newly, in verse 20, Moses comes to them and he says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. God's people are back at the garden. It's a new beginning. And he has given them a new command. They are in God's presence with a charge for obedience through faith. Will they succeed? Will they be a blessing to the nations and fulfill their role that God had given them in Exodus 19, that of being a kingdom of priests? I think we know the answer to this, but keep coming back for the next many weeks as we continue thinking through this book of Exodus. Will they, can, will they succeed? And if they will not, then how will God fix the situation? This is a good, good book. This book of Exodus, but this whole thing. It is wonderful in its continuity, in its setting up through story, rising tension, rising uh, conflict, and then unbelievable resolution, which now we get to sit in on this new setting on the other side of what God has done in this. Uh, I've, I've quoted you to death tonight, but I wanted to wrap up this sermon, wrap up the Ten, the ten Commandments with one more quote from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, this is not only so helpful for us tonight in thinking through coveting and thinking through contentment, but then it will throw us forward into the rest of Exodus. 
the story of sojourners and travelers. I've shared this with you before, but it is too good not to repeat. The Christian is the most contented man in the world, but he is the least contented with the world. He is like a traveler in an inn, perhaps satisfied with the inn and its accommodation, considering it as an inn, but putting quite out of all consideration the idea of making it his home. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray just as Israel heard your word and then moved on in its pilgrimage and its sojourning into a place of secure peace, of secure dwelling with you. We pray that you would be with us now, that we would hear your word and respond in joy and in faith, that this is not for our ill, for our harm, that we are to even be afraid, but your word comes to us for our joy that we can receive it as sons and daughters, not in condemnation, not for all of the ways that we fail, in discontentment, in covetousness, in anger, and in false witness, in lying, in sexual immorality, all of these ways in which we fail, but that you, Lord Jesus, have been the faithful covenant partner that we in Israel have always needed, and that you have brought us near now so that we might have confidence to call you God, Father, we thank, we thank you for these Ten Commandments. We thank you for the way in which you have spoken to your people throughout the millennia and the way that you have spoken to us. Keep transforming us. The strength to follow your commands could never come from us. But we pray, oh God, through the power of your work, Holy Spirit, that you would give us life and that you would give us not only the uh, ability but the desire to obey through faith. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.